hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to the Weaver Alternative Investment Funds podcast. Uh, I'm Brandon Cooperman, partner and New York Investment Funds leader at Weaver. Uh, and in this episode uh, of our series, we're pleased to be joined by Alex Harstrick, founder and managing partner of J2 Ventures. Alex, uh, thanks very much for joining us. A pleasure to have you. Thanks for having me, Brandon. Yeah, absolutely. And, and obviously, I intentionally waited to have this conversation until we, we issued your audit. So You'd be more likely to have a, a smile on your face now that, that we got through the, the painful part of the season. I, I should uh, I should also note that we did not get a discount on that audit, Brandon. Oh, man. Well, I guess we're going to have to look at that for 2023 year end. All right. Well, I think we can get, jump right in. Alex, you know, of course, I'd love to, to start uh, if you can share a bit about your journey to get J2 Ventures uh, launched. Um, but I guess to kick us off, uh, Columbia University, Harvard MBA, uh, military intelligence officer for the U.S. Army. Um, special operations task force deployments to Afghanistan, Iraq. Uh, that's just to, to just to name a couple of your uh, achievements to date. Uh, how did all that lead you to, to venture capital and where you are today? You know, I don't think I can tell the story of J2 or the story of how I got here without talking about how I met my co-founder, John Bronson. Uh, John and I actually were EMTs together at Columbia. There was a volunteer ambulance service in Harlem and Morningside Heights. And so I kind of joke that uh, uh, we're really good at this job that is sort of oriented around making money because our first job had absolutely no possible way to make any money. And uh, 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 John is my best friend. He officiated the wedding of my wife and I. And I think in, in that case, you know, the advice I even give to my my toddler is, you know, show me who your friends are. I'll show you who you are. Right. I think cause you can't say early in your life. Right. And, and John is just an amazing guy. And so I feel like in, in many ways, we sort of um, symbiotically influence each other from that point on. Uh, John was a, uh, a, a consultant at the Boston Consulting Group. Uh, and when he got his job, he sort of taught me about consulting. And then I ended up interviewing for consulting and getting a job at Booz and Company. Uh, John would go and start a, uh, uh, was a, a first employee at an early stage health tech company. Uh, that would later be acquired. And then I was an investor in health tech companies at Blue Cross Blue Shield. And so uh, John eventually kind of, uh, uh, after exiting that, went to go work at D.E. Shaw. And I had a similar sort of money isn't everything moment uh, about what I was focused on. And I ended up enlisting in what I thought was going to be a brief sabbatical into the army. And so I'd been a venture capitalist in essence before that. And so while it was great doing the, uh, being a part of the military, it was just something that I felt was extremely important. I never really lost sight of the fact that there were a lot of different uh, sort of opportunities to interject myself in ways beyond just explicit military service. And so I was recruited by something called the Defense Innovation Unit in its very early days and helped them set up their direct investment function, which is now called National Security Innovation Capital. And in all of those opportunities, I just saw that there was a skill set that I was afforded by being a venture capitalist before joining the Army that very much helped inform my military service. Uh, and, and helping my military service in, inform my investment theses. And, and so what it kind of comes to a head, Brandon, is a, a thought process that I think would be uh, rudimentary to your grandfather, but maybe new to your dad. And, uh, you know, the thought process is for the last 75 years, functionally since World War II, I guess 80 years, the U.S. military has been at the center of just about every great technological leap forward uh, for all of humanity. And... I think it is myopic to not try and be a part of that. So while we are defense tech, uh, uh, national security focused, dual use focused, however it is you want to call it, I think at the end of the day, it's just good investing, which is how do you find somebody who is cost indiscriminate to humongous trends in the future and get ahead of those trends by partnering with an entity that most people are afraid to partner with. 
And that's functionally the thesis of J2. And, you know, presumably investing alongside the U.S. government, to me, there are you know several advantages, you know, some of which you just pointed out. Uh, first, you know, I would imagine the U.S. government is doing tremendous amount of due diligence, you know, before making a strategic investment, uh, both in new technology and also in the people behind that technology, importantly. Um, and secondly, it must be at least somewhat comforting, as I think you alluded to, to be investing alongside um, the U.S. government, who has more access to capital than anyone else in the world. Right. And so. Um, have those uh, presumably strategic advantages uh, played out in the way that you expected? Yeah, I definitely. But I think it's it's actually um, a little bit harder to to uh, to qualify than just saying because they have a lot of money, you know, they can do a lot of amazing things. I I think one thing that that is important to point out is that the U.S. government is not an equity investor in the way that we discuss investing, sort of traditionally, right? So they'll put their money in, but those are predominantly through uh, either grant or purchase orders. Uh, I'd say the most prolific of which is called Small Business Innovation Research Grants, SIBRs. Uh, the government spends uh, around $100 billion on that every single year. And those are things that, that go everywhere from how do I develop LIDAR with DARPA to how do I uh, you know, fund a research study at you know, Stanford, right? And I think most academic institutions at some point in some capacity have taken advantage of U.S. government funding in the way that J2 Ventures seeks to have companies take advantage of U.S. government funding. And so the government is really, really good from a technical diligence perspective when they're granting a lot of these purchase orders. I mean, it's not perfect, but government uh, experts when it comes to actual engineering are really, really incredible people. But the government makes its money right by levying taxes, not by being a profitable entity. And so where the government falls short is in uh, sort of traditional kind of uh, uh, business acumen. And so we have been we have found our sort of product market fit, if you will, in that interaction by giving a helpful perspective in uh, appreciating some of the business and competitive aspects about where these companies exist. And in that sense, the government has a purview that kind of goes this wide and J2 Ventures focuses on a purview that may be a little bit smaller, but but is more intended around venture level outcome. Excellent. That's that's helpful perspective. Yeah, you mentioned J2's um, investment thesis. Uh, have there been any unexpected or unanticipated either advantages or disadvantages from investing alongside the government? Uh, you know, when, and when I say investing alongside the government, too, sometimes we're ahead, sometimes we're behind, uh, you know, depending on where the participation comes from. I think one of the key uh, advantages we've seen is when we were first pitching this thesis and talking about working with government, interest rates were near zero. And there are a lot of companies that were really exciting to invest in that were kind of, you know, I, we qualify as the software for pre people element of venture capital, right? And it's not entirely sure what they do, but it's asset light and it's really easy to proliferate. And uh, as interest rates have gone up, the government has been a lot more attractive as a partner for a lot of different venture capital firms. And I sort of uh, like to say, I don't know that we're necessarily the first to realize this, but we were definitely one of the first. And I think that part has been very helpful as our thesis has become a little bit more mainstream, you know, coming into uh, 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 this this year. The I'd say the disadvantage is if you aren't able to properly titrate your participation with government, then it can be a very uh, frustrating bedfellow. And in that case, if you just think that you're going to walk in and you're going to win some major award and you're going to you know transform uh, 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 you know the internet for army bases that's going to be a very, very long uphill battle. And there's some expertise that we can help with to help people get very large government contracts. But there are some companies that will just never really be fit for growth in that capacity. 
And I think we were able to anticipate a lot of that before, but uh, there's nothing like experiencing it directly that, that as we've scaled J2, we've really learned a lot more about how companies can and should work with government and titrate accordingly. Sure. Excellent. Yeah. And I guess, you know, last question on J2 specifically in your portfolio, you know, any specific niche or, um, you know, within the broader defense sector that you are most excited about? Yeah. The, the four areas that we target are not accidental, right? Uh, these are the areas that we think are the highest for growth uh, broadly, both in the defense sector and uh, in the commercial sector. And those are healthcare specifically as they relate to remote physiological monitoring, we call it next-gen computing is the second area. I think artificial intelligence is kind of what everybody's really excited about, but it's not an accident that while we're excited about artificial intelligence, NVIDIA becomes one of the most uh, uh, valuable companies in the world. There's always going to be some kind of hardware developmental component that's adjacent to the artificial intelligence itself. Uh, cybersecurity, which functionally is what uh, secures that roadway about all of those different technologies. And then uh, infrastructure technology. Uh, uh, how do we make the earth a better, more livable place by investing in some things that I think will, uh, you know, focus on more like uh, connectivity layers, uh, uh, working with municipal government, a lot of this other kind of uh, uh, things that I think will become more apparent as we invest in the areas. Excellent. Thank you. Uh, I guess, you know, we can shift to uh, valuation since that's always top of mind for investors and, and the broader market. Uh, you know, certainly over the past couple of years and still today, uh, you know, there's been somewhat of a prolonged dislocation between public and private markets in terms of valuations, uh, where I think public markets have generally been decimated and private market valuations have kind of, you know, withstood the test of time, at least relatively. Um and in addition to the obvious culprits, you know, at least in my view, that there's a supply and demand thing there, right? The public markets, there's been about a thousand SPACs that have IPO'd, you know, in the past three years um, and oversaturation in the market where on the private side, you know, at least in late 2020 and, and all of 2021, there was a tremendous amount of capital infused into the market that then needed to be deployed in the private space. And so uh, for me, almost, it's been a little bit of a, a tale of two markets. Uh, how do you see it? Uh, I think intelligent investors will always tell you that uh, uh, in the short run, markets are a, uh, a voting mechanism, and in the long run, they're a weighing mechanism, right? And so I think when people talk about that sort of dislocation, there's an expectation that the public markets are always the exit. And so, you know, really, nobody escapes a DCF at some point, if you're going to go to the public markets, but most venture exits are acquisitions that will be along a strategic dimension. So I think it's kind of unfair to say, the public markets are down, therefore private markets should be down. The That dislocation is a feature, not a bug. It's We have a 10-year hold period, so these assets will have the opportunity to mature in different life cycles in the public markets if they choose to IPO. And if there's an acquisition for whatever reason, you know, we very rarely found acquirers that are excited about acquiring something strictly for uh, revenue, right? It's usually some kind of uh, adjacent market, uh, a very difficult customer set to purchase, um, a, you know, a plethora of different reasons. But at the end of the day, humans are humans, whether they are in charge of an enterprise or whether they are an individual making a deal. And I think it is a, uh, I think it is a mischaracterization of the market to just say that one sort of leads to the other and that somebody's irrational on one side and rational on the other. Um, you know, I think we forget, right. Was it, a? uh, Amazon IPO'd for a, at a billion dollar valuation, right? Uh, 
somebody at that point said that the company was overvalued, right? In fact, a lot of people probably said the company was overvalued. It was, it was losing money constantly. And I, I think those people are wrong, just objectively, you know, 100x uh, in the future. You know, and at the same time, I think there are companies that are, uh, you know, that are bought for revenue multiples that uh, uh, where the market just completely bottoms out later. And those people are similarly wrong, but one would say they're more fundamental focused than the other. And I think the answer is uh, uh, it, to just sort of remain disciplined about your thesis, because at the end of the day, it's not the individual companies that you should be looking at, but it's the process by which you select them that you should be ultra critical of. Sure. Excellent. Thank you. Um, I guess, you know, moving to the broader venture capital ecosystem, you know, SVB obviously, um, you know, hit the, the VC ecosystem uh, with their collapse and, you know, the, the broader contagion. Um, you know, how do you view the, the current state of the, v, uh, the VC ecosystem post SVB and, and what type of maybe systemic changes, if any, are you anticipating coming? Yeah, I, I don't I don't know if SVB necessarily had that much to do with venture capital, uh, right? Because I actually, if anything, if I think we're going to look back at this time and think SVB was very intelligent because the core offering that they had uh, as it related to venture debt was not the issue. It wasn't that underwriting venture capital firms or venture capital companies was the problem. It was all of the uh, uh, you know securities that they bought and sold as a bank that were the problem, right? So when I say the SVB core thesis about working with early stage technology companies, I think stood the test of time. Uh, that was a smart thing to do. And I think you're seeing a lot of people upstream begin to adopt that same mentality, albeit a little bit slower than SVB did. So I think if anything, that, that sort of corroborates working with early stage companies is a good idea. Um, but I think for the overall market, it's not about SVB in particular, but rather the space and time where we are right now, which is interest rates are super high, uh, people over allocated to venture during the hot times, all these kind of things. But when people say you were not excited about venture, I don't know what that even means, right? Venture is the same thing that produces Genentech as produced Facebook, as produced, um, you know, uh, self-driving cars, right? Like venture as an asset class just means getting ahead of really big ideas early. And so that's never going to go away. You're going to see a lot more people being critical of managers in that space. So you saw this sort of pre-Cambrian era of like hundreds of funds being launched in, in uh, 2020, 2021, 2022. I think a lot of those funds were never fit for growth and most of them will not uh, be able to raise subsequent funds. But those who do make it through and have that sort of thesis and that sort of alignment along quality LPs will notice and they'll double down on. Okay, obviously you've had you know a lot of success success with J two so far, um, and you know hope you have continued success. Obviously for for new fund managers or those looking to raise capital for the first time, um, any tips you can share, or maybe something that you wish you had known before launching J two. Uh, thank you. I appreciate that comment, by the way, Brandon, because you're the one that looks under the hood at just about everything that we do. So uh, yeah, uh, uh, thank you. Our, our check already cleared. I should note that. But the, uh, um, uh, I think early managers need to focus on all the things that they know they need to focus on, which is what differentiates you in a world where nobody wants another investment manager. Everybody thinks that they're smart. Everybody thinks that they can uh, pick companies that nobody else can see. It's very difficult to prove that. And it's difficult to prove that for an entire portfolio that justifies the risk of the asset class. And so what I would uh, what I would emphasize to those managers is make sure that you are that you have all of those characteristics while at the same time having fun with the job because it is just too much work, too much time to not enjoy it. I think LPs are going to be sensitive to that. 
while at the same time understanding that you need to communicate uh, ethics and moral procedures that make people comfortable giving them your money. And so no matter how much fun you're having, no matter how diehard you are, you have to understand that you are a, a, a fiduciary and that people are ultra, ultra sensitive to what you do when nobody is looking and making sure that you can communicate that as explicitly as possible in the diligence process, because nobody just wants to give up their money. They want to give it to somebody who is going to invest it as if they were, were constantly having their shoulder looked over. And I think the biggest issue with emerging managers is they think being smart is enough, but there's a whole bunch of discipline and ethics and uh, procedural aspects that nobody will ever see, but that you do have to communicate uh, that will uh, indicate that you're a going concern, indicate that you are somebody trustworthy, you know, all of these kind of things. And I would encourage people to invest in those early even if it means taking a lower salary in the process. All right. Well, there you have it. Words of wisdom from Alex Harstrick of J2 Ventures. Uh, Alex, you know, thanks so much for, for joining us in this brief podcast um, and look forward to having you back soon. Cool. Thanks for having me on, Brandon. See ya.